I am convinced that most people who consume news and have a sense, think they have a sense of what we do as journalists, really don't have a clue. And that's not a put down, but I think especially for for African-American journalists, journalists of color inside mainstream newsrooms, the kind of daily grind that we have to, that we face, in part because our perspective is still not celebrated or appreciated. It is tolerated often, and it is not completely embraced. Creek Consulting, welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's John Wesley Fountain, a nationally known journalist who's worked as a journal assignment writer for the Washington Post and a national correspondent for the New York Times. Born in Chicago, John has taught journalism as a visiting scholar at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. He's been a tenured professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, his alma mater, John is now a professor at Roosevelt University, and from 2010 to 2022, he was a columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times. That was before he started his own Substack, 50 Cent a Word, A Diary of a Freed Black Man. John is also the author of True Vine, A Young Black Man's Journey of Faith, Hope, and Clarity, and a collection of essays called Dear Dad, A Reflection on Fatherhood. John has received numerous awards from the National Association of Black Journalists, the Associated Press, the American Association of University Women, and the Chicago Headline Club. While we were at the New York Times together, he won a Publishers Award for a 2001 Mississippi River Floods uh, set of stories. He captured the complex relationship between the people in the Midwest and the South who live along its banks and the river. John and I have been friends since working at the Times together, and I've been honored to be a guest on several occasions to his Roosevelt University journalism class, um, where I've discussed my own journalistic scandal and mental health journey. John's a man of remarkable faith and has devoted his career to telling the stories of the lost and forgotten. In this day and age where people, public companies, and publications give platitudes to social justice, John has spent decades giving sweat and tears and even sacrificing in his career to tell those stories. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of journalists telling those stories and why the forces of the industry, despite the words, push back against that happening. So, John, I wanted to welcome you. I always enjoy my conversations from you. I always enjoy learning from you. So I just wanted to thank you uh, for being on the podcast and welcome you. Thank you, Jason. The feeling is mutual. Thank you for having me. So I was going to ask you a question about, I was going to start off by asking a little bit about your new Substack, 50 Cent a Word. You know, a lot of people outside the journalism industry may not understand exactly what that means. And I was wondering if you could give them a little bit of insight about what the meaning behind that is and what it's like to work in the profession. Because I think a lot of people uh, may see it in a completely different way than the reality. Excellent question. I think that um, I'm convinced that most people who consume news and have a sense, think they have a sense of what we do as journalists, really don't have a clue. And that's not a put down, but I think especially for for African-American journalists, journalists of color inside mainstream newsrooms, the kind of daily grind that we have to, that we face, in part because our perspective is still not celebrated or appreciated. It is tolerated often, and it is not completely embraced you know, I, I will tell you about 50 cent a word where that comes from, but I, I, let me let me just backpedal a bit and say that in 1968, the Kerner Commission produced a report looking at uh, that previously, the previous year, examined 
the uh, riots in quotes that were happening uh, around the country. And they were trying to get to the root of it. What was causing this racial turmoil or tension in America? And one of the things that they came back with was they said uh, in March of 1968, the media was biased, not only biased, but the stories that were being produced by the mainstream media in America helped perpetuate the misconceptions and misperceptions about African-Americans. And that if the country was going to change, because at that point it seemed that we were on a track to become two Americas, one white and one black. And if we were going to prevent this implosion or this explosion around the country, that one of the primary things that had to happen was newsrooms needed to change their complexion. They needed to employ a journalist of color. Back then they used the word Negro, but African-American journalists, not only in reporting positions within newsrooms, but also um, within um, editorial or management positions so that we could begin to change the landscape in terms of the platter of daily American journalism that we put forth to American citizens every day and ultimately to change people's minds about who we are as African Americans. And I would say that in 2023, there is still a great need. And throughout my journalism career, which has lasted about 40 years, it has not changed. I think that there have been some cosmetic changes, but I, getting to your question in terms of 50 cent a word, Having been a reporter at the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Post and the New York Times, having been to the Modesto Bee and interned at the Champagne News Gazette and at the Chicago Sun-Times way back when and before I got hired at the Tribune at the Tribune and the Wall Street Journal and a number of newspapers having gone inside those newsrooms, again, I think that my opinion and my presence was tolerated, not appreciated, and not celebrated. And so as I began to take my last, uh, my swan song in daily American mainstream journalism, which the last episode was as a columnist for 13 years for the Chicago Sun-Times, it became very clear to me in as much as they published my columns. And I've had a couple of good editors along the way, including Tom McNamee, who is white, a Caucasian, who invited me to write my column. Despite that, I think there was always a feeling of not me not feeling welcome or at home. And so when Tom invited me to write my column, they said they would pay me what amounts to about 50 cents a word, a little less. I get 600 Mm -hmm. words to write my column. Before that, it was around 700, 750 but all in all, yeah, roughly 50 cent a word. And I remember writing a column about uh, why I write and that it surely is not the money. Right. And I, and I put that in my column and I said, I must they paid me. And I love Tom McNamee, but he took it out. And he said, really? yes, he said, we don't, we don't want to tell people, you know, our internal business and what's going on. I'm like, bro, that's not it. You know, that's not right. You can right because we put that same lens on everybody else. Yes, I'm a journeyman, you know, and 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 I paid my dues in journalism. Again, it's not about the money, and for me, it's about the principle. And so, you know, the last few years, uh, changing editors. You know, I've made a point about this idea of fifty cent a word, and I'm I'm from an old Pentecostal background, and you know, in church they taught us that God will take the thing that you thought was cursed and and turn it into a blessing. So rather than saying that was a curse, I grabbed it and said, you know what? I'm going to turn this into a blessing. This is the word what they paid me. But it is in my substack, Diary of a Free Black Journalist, meaning, you know, I thought about free black journalists as in presence, uh, F-R-E-E. And I said, no, I'm like those freed men who were enslaved and in the process of evolution became freed. And so I'm I've said that people don't mourn for me. I am I am more happy than I've ever been as a journalist. And I say what the hell I want. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a beauty and I, to that. And then as much as I've had some great editors, 
you know, and some editors may take offense to what I'm about to say, but I don't have to answer to some stupid, jaded editor who wants to tell me that my perspective is not valid. It's very, it's, it's an interesting you say that. I remember when we were at the Times together, an uh, editor who will be, uh, remain nameless, and he was a <laughs> former reporter. <laughs> he was making a joke about our editors, and because uh, he had just recently become an editor, and he's sitting in the bathroom at the urinal, you know, relieving himself. And he says, he turns and says, Jason, what am I doing? And I'm like, I have no idea. And he said, I'm making your story better. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right? So, you know, I think about uh, two things. I think about when I first came into journalism in the um, early 1990s uh, as a college student and a high school student, it was $2 a word. Not 50 cents a word. And I kind of think of that as how much sort of maybe the profession has been devalued or how competitive it's come. But the thing that you said about how slow the change is, you're talking about going all the way back to the Kerner report. Uh, They're pointing it out. When I was in college at the University of Maryland in the, um, you know, early, early ish 1990s, and we had a great journalism school, but the civil rights heroes, there were four professors there who were civil rights heroes. Hmm. And only one of them, one of them was black. Hmm. Um, ben Coleman, who had worked in the Justice Department and was a writer. And then there was Reese Cleghorn, who had been the editor of the Charlotte Observer during the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and had been a prominent advocate for, for civil rights. Hodding Carter, who you may be familiar with, most people may know him as Jenny, one of Jimmy Carter's, uh, or during the Carter administration, he was a State Department um, spokesman, but he had been the editor of a uh, Mississippi paper, the Delta Democrat Times, mm. during the Civil Rights Movement. And Reese Cleghorn, or, or and Reese was the Reese was the dean at the time, and he brought on Gene Roberts. Uh, from the from the New York Times, mm-hmm. and so you know there were four advocates for civil rights and bringing more minorities into journalism. Three of them were white, and it was it struck me. I first of all, I felt grateful that I had four sort of pioneers of African American rights and journalism that covered the South and civil rights fair, fairly. But it always struck me that it it was dependent on the grace of three white people, if that made sense. Mm, it does. Yeah. And I've, I've always felt, you know, grateful, right? Uh, mm-hmm. White people have had the power and we probably wouldn't have been freed if some white people, you know, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln hadn't, you know, advocated for our freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd probably, the civil rights movement would have turned out differently if there weren't white white journalists Mm -hmm. um, who had fought for civil rights. But at the same time, it just sort of feels like over the course of my career, your career, the baton was not handed off, if that makes sense. Mm. The power structure has stayed the same, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I think the power structure has stayed the same because racism is still a reality of life in America and that this country was founded upon racism, and uh, it was built upon the backs of slaves. And the Constitution is a wonderful, uh, of the United States, is is a wonderful document. But let's not forget that the Constitution did not see us, or the Founding Fathers did not see us as human beings. And so I think that you know, it is important. You know, one of the classes that I teach is called uh, Telling Social Justice Stories. I've taught it for the last few years. And we use a book by Bob Ostertag, People's Movements, People's Press, and it really makes the case for the independent voice, the independent press. And it begins with William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass and talks about the work of uh, people like uh, John B. Russworm, who you know, we, there were so many African-Americans who applauded and uh, uplifted, celebrated the fact that there were whites who were advocating for us. But when John B. Russworm began his newspaper, 
He said, too long have others spoken for us. Too long has the public been deceived by misrepresentations and things which concern us dearly. And so the point is we have to tell our own stories. And so one of the things that the mainstream press has not done very well is to, number one, come to the realization that their perspective is not our perspective. The way I grew up is not the way they grew up. And because I cover that story or because my stories may have black or brown faces doesn't make it a race story. It makes, unless you're calling it a human race story, the story is still about humanity. But there are some reporters who have the ability because of our perspective and journalism does not require that we leave our perspective at the curbside of American journalism. We can't. I've never read an objective story in my life, and I will certainly have never written one. There is, we are incapable of writing a purely objective story. And so what I tell my students is we seek as journalists, when we do the best job we can, to be fair and balanced. But the selection of stories is subjective. The people we select to talk to is subjective. And so that's really important. And so I think that journalism will change ultimately, and and my thinking has advanced, when we began to, outside of the mainstream, take advantage of the technology and the opportunity to speak authentically in our own voices, to tell our own stories, and uh, which has led me to my Substack and is going to um, continue to compel me, push me to to write books through my publishing company, which is Westside Press, which actually the New York Times is responsible for helping me create. Oh, really? Westside Press. How so? There was a story as a kid. His name was uh, Rodney McAllister. I was still at the Times at the time. And I had, uh, this young man had been, he was uh, about eight years old. And or nine years old, and he was uh, living in St. Louis, Missouri. The story is that Rodney's mother had, had apparently had some drug issues and she had recovered. But Rodney was a kind of man child taking care of his mom and, and his family. And one night, Rodney didn't come home. His mother thought that he was perhaps staying with relatives mm. or a friend. It turns out the next morning, a gentleman in St. Louis is getting ready and the neighborhood is getting ready to go to work. He sees some dogs making a ruckus and he goes over to investigate and it is the body of a little boy. The dogs have mauled him to death and begun to eat, eat his body. So I made a few calls, you know, as a correspondent, a national correspondent, we are the eyes and ears of the Times readers and so on. Nothing else was really going on at the time. I call my editors in New York and I say, hey, I got the story. I break it down to them. I've already done my preliminary reporting. You know, they've got a rally scheduled. This this killing or the death of this child has uh, galvanized the community. They're saying, how could this happen? We thought we were okay. This will never happen again. And it's just really a story about how Rodney McAllister fell through the cracks and what this has done to this community and the hope, the future, and so on. So they give me the green light to go and do the story. I'm getting ready to go to the airport, and I get a call from an editor who shall remain nameless. <laughs> Probably not the same editor. <laughs> and, and he says, John, um, we they don't want you to do the story. And I said, Why not? I said, Why not? Exactly. Huh. And he said, I, I don't want to say. I said, Come on. You don't want me to do the story. What, what's the problem? Finally, after some tussle, verbal tussle, he says, They say we already have a dog story. What? That's what they said. And what was the dog story? The dog story was uh, about an elderly couple in California who um, had apparently been attacked by pit bulls. They survived. But this wasn't a dog story. Yes, it was not a story about dogs at all. At all. It was a story about a little black boy. Being lost. And all those things that I I just talked about. And so... I say in in starting Westside Press, that is the day it was born, because I said no editor would ever tell me again what a story is and the stories that I get to tell. And it's interesting when I think about that story, if that had been 
a white kid in, I don't know, uh, the suburbs of Atlanta or or the suburbs of Washington, D.C., I would think that would be a front page story all over the world. And I think that sometimes, you know, when you think about the idea of what you see in the newspaper and whether it's fair and balanced, mm-hmm. sometimes it has nothing to do with the actual story, what's happening in the actual story. It's what was selected, what was chosen, what wasn't chosen. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, it can be a blind spot, you know. I, I think a place like the Times, you have a lot of people who are well-meaning and upstanding. You know, I remember growing up in the South, and there was plenty of racism. It was open, and people would be very open. Like my my parents like you, but they won't let you come over to our house because you're black. <laughs> they don't. It, <laughs> there was no blind spot. Like you were clear, and I yes. think there's for a lot of people in the North and metropolitan areas, there's a blind spot for their own racism, even when you think of uh, some of the social justice things that are happening right now. I was talking to a police chief recently about the George Floyd scenario. He said, I can do this reform, that reform, this reform, but still at the end of the day, we live in a racist society. Mm. And I kept on thinking in that moment about the stories that don't get covered, the things that don't get pressed. And I don't know why it made me think of this, but, you know, back before Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a Supreme Court justice, she was arguing this case. I think it was about, you know, military benefits for spouses. They they used to pay women, uh, I think, less, or they paid men less. I forget what it was, but mm-hmm. she, was, she was arguing the case and she, she said something like, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask uh, of our <laughs> brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Yes. Yeah. And I just, with that story that you're telling, I'm just thinking in that moment, if they had just like trusted and taken their feet off your neck, some good could have happened for Chicago, for, for, for other urban areas. What, what are your thoughts? My thought is, my, my thought is that I, I think you hit the nail on the head as I look back over the course of my career, having started at the Chicago Tribune and going to the Washington Post and going to the New York Times, one of my key battles came down to this. I was always trying to convince them to let me do what I do, to trust me, to come back with a story that mattered. And a lot of times I think, you know, it's one thing, you know, to be a sin of omission and for people to be ignorant. And uh, we all have blind spots, but I think it is another thing when it becomes, you know, cemented. And I think you are ignorant by choice. You don't want to see the light. And so- Well, because that editor, remember that editor, what he said to you? He -hmm. said, I don't want to tell you. He knew it was wrong in that moment. He knew it was wrong. And I suspect those very smart people who made the decision knew it was wrong. They, they, they knew it was wrong. I have no doubt in my mind. But, you know, to look in the mirror and to say for them to, to analyze it, to do a self-analysis and to say, why did I do that? And, and to do like you just did, if it were someone who was white uh, um, or who at very least was not black, would they have made the same decision? And I think, um, you know, my students and I did a story, a series of stories recently within the last couple of years about 51 mostly African-American women who were murdered in the city of Chicago. And uh, at least. Yeah, uh, I've read a lot about that. The, um, you know, to the point where I think I was reading, it wasn't a recent story. It was actually a blog talking about there could be multiple serial killers operating in Chicago. Yeah. I was shocked by the number of lost or dead women. And, you know, part of the reason that story isn't on the front pages uh, continually or isn't on the nightly newscast in Chicago is because they were black women. And I have said publicly and will say again, if there were 51 dogs or cats. In Westchester. Yeah, man, that would be, that would be be front page news and it will be continual. And, And I, and I think that you know, it's one thing, you know, for me as a journalist to bemoan this, uh, belabor this point. 
The question at the end of the day is, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I am no longer interested in arguing with editors inside mainstream newsrooms. I am no longer interested in even necessarily writing for them. I'm interested in finding ways to tell our story, to write our truth. I was sitting down with two um, producers of um, documentaries recently, and they said, we are looking for stories to tell about black and brown people who are murdered or missing, and also indigenous women. They said, but as we look for and scan, because we rely on the source of, of, new, of news in America, of newspapers and um, news that's produced on, in broadcasts, they said, but we can't find the stories. And it was wow. profound to me because in the city of Chicago last year, there were about 700 people murdered and about 3,000 people shot. And we don't do a fraction of those stories. Right. Very few of them. I was looking at um, the Baltimore Sun keeps track of the number of um, uh, murders in Baltimore a year. They also break it down by race, and it's a little geographic map. And if you mm. click on the little dots, you can sort it by different ones. You can see how many had had a story written about them. Yes. And it was really remarkable to me in general how few had stories written about them but striking to me, particularly black men, but black women as well, how few had a story written about them. And I thought to myself, you guys are doing a good job with your data journalism, proving to me what you're doing wrong with your journalism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because, and I don't, I don't want to knock data journalism, but it, it has become data journalism is the new sexy, <laughs> you know, in journalism. Yeah, all things analytics. <laughs> and it's like, you know, sometimes I read some of these stories and I'm like, you gave me numbers, but you, you so you sit in the ivory tower and you do that, but you don't tell me the story behind the numbers and what it means. Yeah. And sometimes that one story that tells many stories yes. is more par powerful than all the data. What is, what's that phrase that, you know, it's like, um, you know, one story, I'm not going to get it right, but one story is super powerful. Millions, just a statistic. Yes. Um, yeah. I, you may not know this, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I told you this, but when you first came to the New York Times and we were sitting in what I call our insurance office in the newsroom, <laughs> <laughs> I was totally in awe. I, my jaw dropped that John Wesley Fountain was in front of me because back when I was a college student, you were a writer for the Washington Post, just a beautiful writer. And I even had a friend who was at the University of Maryland uh, student newspaper with me. He said, he was like, wait, you're, you're, you're sitting right beside John Fountain. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, how did you, how did you, how did you become that John Fountain, the one who is interested in journalism and, you know, how did, how were you both so successful and what was the purpose for you? Man, I will tell you, you know, I didn't have a dream of writing for the New York times. I could give two dams, you know, I, I really did. And I, I say that, and, and I know people would probably be like, you know, yeah, he's lying. No, no, nah, man. I was, I got into journalism because I love writing and, uh, and I had a family and I, and I had to find out, find a way to take care of my family. And so when you're on welfare and you can barely make it month to month and uh, you can't afford to buy your children's shoes, you do something to try and make a difference and so that you can, you can take care of your family. And, um, and so it was, it was at a time during Reaganomics, actually, and I could not find a job. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to school. And, you know, mm. I rediscovered my love for writing. And I never in a million years in my wildest dreams would have thought that I would start my career at the Chicago Tribune and go to the Washington Post and the New York Times and become a journalism professor and write books and so on. I could not imagine that. I could not dream. So it wasn't all a secret plan. <laughs> it was It was not. If it was a plan, it was above my pay grade. It was <laughs> way above me. And I, you know, I just, but I'm very passionate about journalism. I'm very passionate about the story of African-Americans. I'm very passionate about helping us um, to convey the stories of our humanity and the story of life on the other side of the tracks 
I was living in a place called K-Town where I grew up, more commonly known as North Lawndale, when the Tribune uh, years ago came um, came a calling to do a series called that they ultimately called the American Millstone. They said, because we were the millstone, my community, draped around America's neck. We would never amount to anything. We didn't have middle-class values. We didn't want anything and so on. And they found the most destitute African-American folks that they could find, people that I didn't know, and I grew up in that community. And I'm not saying that what they found did not exist, but they did not paint a picture in its totality, a wholesome picture, a more fair and balanced picture of what life was like in North Lawndale. And even today, that series has left a bad taste in the mouths of Westsiders in Chicago. And so a couple of years after that series runs, I walk in the Chicago Tribune as a reporter. And, And I understood what my presence meant there. And I also understood and have always understood what my duty is in the newsroom. As I say to students, the journalist's first obligation from Kovacs and Rosenstiel is to the truth. Right. Our right. first loyalty is to the reader. And journalism is a discipline of the verification of fact. And our presence in the newsroom is important. And so when I got to the you know New York Times newsroom, I got to tell you, man, you know, I was living at the time uh, before I got there. I had been I lived in Centerville, Virginia, when I was working for the Post. Really? Wow! Yeah. <laughs> so so where I grew up. up. Yeah, man. So I picked <laughs> up a local newspaper and I saw the story about this weird kid. That's funny. When I walk into the newsroom, and you know, I can't imagine why they set us next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> So I walk into the newsroom and they said, hey, John, you come over and sit here. This is this is Jason Blair. Hey, Jason. I said, wait a minute. Man, are you from Centerville, Virginia? What <laughs> about you? So That's was, so funny. It was the same. That's so funny. So, you know, that is a great segue to a question that I've never asked you. So, you know, I, I think most people know that when I was at the Times, I am responsible for a monumental plagiarism and fabrication scandal. There are an assortment of things, you know, connected to that. Some of it mental health, some of it youth, some of it, you know, losing sight of my values. But I've never asked the question because there are some stereotypes about African-American journalists that exist. You know this. We can't write, right? (laughs) Even though you're a beautiful writer, we can't think and we're lazy. Right. And I think a lot of people outside of newsrooms are very surprised. I mean, it's such a prevalent belief that I'm pretty sure some people said it to me without saying to me that they were like, you know, people believe this. I'm like, who are these people? Is it you? Um, I, when I worked at the Boston Globe, one um, editor came up to a black colleague I had as I was sitting beside her. And he said, and I, I swear he thought he was giving her a compliment. He said, you know, when you write a story, you really sound like you know what you're talking about. (laughs) Whoa. Whoa. But I've I've never really asked you, what was it like? Because you were there. Were you there after me? I was there. Yeah. What was it like as an African-American having, being in the wake of that? Because a common thread afterwards was... Jason Blair was there because of affirmative action and he really shouldn't have been there. And one of the things that I always thought was that had a downstream negative impact on every African-American journalist at the times and, and beyond. And I think that was one of the hardest things for me. What was, what was it like then? I will tell you that it was um, during that time, I remember it being very tense and intense at the New York Times, I uh, both inside and outside the newspaper. When I would go out to report, and I'd introduce myself as a reporter with the New York Times, as, um, they would always assume, because I was a black reporter at the New York Times, oh, you're Jason Blair. <laughs> and I'd say, no. <laughs> yeah, Jason. <laughs> no. well, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would say, no, I'm John Fountain. 
and, and I would go on, and I, I think that you, you have admitted to what you did, and you've made no qualms about it, and you've told your story about about that. And I, and I think that that we ought to leave it at that. And here's the thing that happens in America with black men. We don't get the same kind of opportunity to make recompense or the opportunity for reconciliation or forgiveness that white men get. And I think that having been at the Times and having started at the Tribune and again gone to the Post, I know that those pressures are very real. And it's very difficult. It's hard for me to imagine what it must have been like for you as a young man and as a young Black man at the New York Times to what it was like to, if you feel pressure, who do you turn to within the organization? And that's not a cop-out. Yeah, no, not at all. But But, I mean, it's also also true. You know, I've never been able to tell whether it was my personality or whether race, it probably played a role in it. But I think a lot of it was my personality too. But in the back of my mind, there was this itching voice long before the scandal started that said, you may not have an option for a second chance. Mm. And I think that may be part of the reason why I never asked for help when I knew mentally things were, were, um, were falling, uh, falling apart. And, and, and just listening to you right now, I wonder whether that played some, some role in and not not reaching out to for help because I didn't think either because of my personality or my race or whatever or my age or whatever factor that that there really was an opportunity. And you know the interesting thing you say about journalists being wedded for the truth, wedded to the truth that that's our first loyalty. I think it's so. Despite what happened for me in the scandal, I think the reason why I have been able to carve a second chance. Mm-hmm. At life, if that makes sense, yes, is yeah. is just unabashed truth about myself. Mm. No matter how embarrassing it is, or hard, or whether it brings tears to my eyes, and I didn't, I didn't realize it until recently. A friend pulled me aside and said, "You know," she said, "You know what your superpower is?" And I was like, "What's your superpower?" She's like, "You are unbelievably honest. You're." <laughs> Honest about yourself, you are the one person who, if my baby is ugly, I know will tell me the truth. <laughs> no, don't don't say don't say he's ugly. Say he's precious. Yes, precious or bless his heart. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I I always wondered what it must have been like because one of the things you know, my mother told me. When I was a child, she said, you know, be what, be nice to white people because you may be the only black person that they have a conversation with that lasts longer than a minute. Hmm. And that, I know this wasn't my mom's intention. That's a pretty heavy burden to carry. Yes, yes. And I, I talked to her years later about it and she said, well, when you show a white person that you can do something that they don't think a black person can do, you know, you're carrying, you're carrying a bit of a burden there, but it's going to help your children, your children's children. And it's just what your grandfather did and your great grandfather did. And, you know, her point was, this is not fair. It is not right, but it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is what it is. I call it welcome to the NFL, you know, in life, in whether it's journalism or, or some other profession, we know and we hear the stories. I certainly have heard them from all walks of life of what it means to, um, to report while black or to walk while black or to be a cop while black and so on. And so it is difficult. And, you know, one of the things that I think some of us fall victim to is trying to prove to white folks that we are good enough. And I say to hell with that, you know, and you have to get to the point where, you know, you know, you're good enough. When I got to the Washington Post, for instance, 
I was having a conversation at a time when I was uh, I was having some difficulty at the Post, and I got in, into a conversation with uh, an administrator, an editor, who happened to be African American uh, woman, and I said to her, "Hey, I get the sense that people here are saying that I can't write," and she says, "John, that's exactly what they're saying." I said, "Hold on, wait a minute," which is wild because you're a beautiful writer. Thank you. I, I said, "Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute." The first story that I got published in the Washington Post which ran on the front of style was a story I wrote all by myself at the Chicago Tribune about hmm. Al Green and his, uh, his ex-wife, Shirley Green. What the hell they mean I can't write? And Hal Raines later told me uh, during a conversation, he said, you know, John, good writing scares people. He said, you know why? I said, no. He said two reasons. He says, one is they, they think you made it up. And uh-huh. and, uh, and he said the other reason is um, it's hard as hell to write like that. Yes. And yeah. um, and so it takes blood, sweat, and tears. I know where it comes from and, and what it took me to learn to write, to get better at the craft. But I will tell you, you know, you asked the, the, the question a, a little while ago about what it was like to work at the Times, particularly, I think, as a, as a, as a black man. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the only black male on the national desk, the yep. only black person on the national desk. And um, man, it was no harder than before the scandal. And I'm going to say something. When I got to the, when I got to the, to the Chicago Bureau, mm-hmm. I later came to understand that there was a, a, a team of um, stringers whose, whose job every week was to send a memo of the stories that were happening in their particular region, in their particular state. It was an 11-state region that we were covering. I never saw a memo. Really? That the, the bureau chief never shared a memo with me. Wow. I asked at one point when they were sending me, and Hal Raines was talking about, we need to metabolize. And I was looking at my travel log and how often I was going. And by the second a uh, month. I had been in every state. And I said, well, why are you guys only sending me and not the other reporter who was white? Hmm. And you know what they said yeah. to me? What? She has a family. Oh, wow. And I said, what the hell? Yeah. What does that have I to have do a family with? too. You have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I will say this, that, that there was another person who came into the bureau after that person left, who was who was a Jewish woman. And during, you know, this, your scandal at, at the Times, I don't remember what, what prompted this conversation. But she looked at me in my eye and she said, John, some would say you're an affirmative action hire. Wow. And I didn't say what was on my mind. I just wow. kind of shook my head. But my reply would have been, I was in the bureau before you got here. As a matter of fact, when you came through the Chicago Tribune as an intern, I was a full-fledged reporter. I have Mm. more degrees than you. I have more experience than you. And I've been here longer than you. Now, who's the affirmative action hire? Right, because what is it, you know, affirmative actions criticized, but, you know, when you're hiring people who went to the same Ivy League schools you did and the ones who looked like you... That, that's nothing but a form of affirmative action. It's just not based on race. It's preference because yes. of your similarities. And, and one of the interesting things, you mentioned Hal Raines, who's the executive editor of um, the New York Times, another one of those white journalists from the South who were involved in the civil rights movement. Yes. And I don't remember, did he hire you or was it Joe Lelyveld? Who was it was Joe Lelyveld. And at the time, Dean Baquet was on, uh, I think Dean might have been national editor. Yeah, he was the national editor. I felt there was a shift when Hal came on. And, you know, oh, one yeah. of the shifts, he, he wanted things to move fast. And um, Joe Boyd, yeah. they used. Yes, right, right. Flood the zone. <laughs> and um, Gerald Boyd, who was the first black managing editor, took that role. Dean McKay, who was also black, was, uh, I believe, he was the national editor at that time. He left. Yes, he left to go to the Los Angeles Times. That's okay. right. But I noticed a tone shift when you had the white guy who cared about civil rights and the black managing editor. I I noticed this tone shift where 
for African-Americans that people didn't uh, look askew at, or even the Native American journalists who worked there at the time, um, everybody began to be seen as an affirmative action hire. And I had these peers, uh, call them peers, they were, you know, four, five, six years older than me. They'd gone to graduate school, so they had that on me. But, you know, uh, my mentor, Jerry Gray, turned to me and said, well, and I was, I was in a moment of insecurity, and I was asking about being an affirmative action hire, and he said, how many of them were interns at the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the, Was- the Boston Globe's Washington Bureau, exactly. and here at the Times? And even for me, as an African-American, I was sliding into that crazy land. Yes. Um, it's so oppressive. Yes. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, you know, <laughs> someone asked me, and I can't remember who, someone asked me the difference between working for the Washington Post and working at the New York Times. And I had never thought about that question, but I answered it, you know, straightforwardly. I didn't hesitate. It, and I said, the Washington Post wants your heart and the New York Times wants your soul. Yes. Which brings me to an interesting question. People wouldn't understand, I, I think, why someone would voluntarily leave the New York Times. What what caused you to leave the New York Times and then later leave the Chicago Sun-Times to um, start your own substack? Is there parallel con- connections, different situations? I think for me, it was, it was an evolution. You know, um, it's very interesting to me, um, that when, when I left the Sun-Times recently, uh, I'm friends with, with a, a woman who used to be the secretary for the Chicago Bureau of the New York Times. And she says, wow, you're, cause I said I was going to write for the Chicago Crusader, a black newspaper, the oldest, I think African-American weekly in Chicago may be in the nation. And um, I said, I'm going to do some writing for them. I've been doing writing for them over, over the last few years. And she said, wow, from the New York Times to the Chicago Crusader? And I'm like, and still John Fountain. And, right. And it is, you know, I'll deal with that later, but, but the sense of uh, self-hate and um, diminished appreciation for who we are as a people and what we do. But I left the New York Times because when I signed on, I signed on to be a correspondent for three years. That was the deal. I knew that coming in and um, I would be in the Chicago Bureau. And quite honestly, it was the only only job that the New York Times could offer me. I was working at the Washington Post. I was a Michigan journalism fellow and I didn't go looking for a job at the Times. They came looking for me. And um, it's just a fact. And so the only job that they could have offered me to entice me to come to the New York Times, because I just was not interested in starting over, even in becoming a national correspondent. I know that I've been around long enough to know that every newsroom has their unique culture. And, you know, I knew that there would be people who would be resentful to me coming onto the national desk and so on. So I just, or coming to the Times, I just, I just wasn't interested in doing it. So after the three years, um, I get a call from Gerald Boyd. Actually, we met in Michigan. He said he was going to give me, you know, he was giving me what he thought would be bad news. They wanted me to come back to New York and, me- and work on Metro. And I was like, man, you got to be out of your mind. I am not, number one, I don't like New York. There's nothing against New York. It's just, it's big and it's just not the kind of place that I wanted to raise my family and a little too busy for me. And so we're eating, and uh, and I started laughing. And uh, Gerald said to me, he said, what's funny? And I said, uh, you really want to know? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, humor me. Tell me what's funny. And I said to him, um, I know this is going to sound crazy, a little, a little you know, crazy coming from me, uh, talking to my secular editor, but um, God takes care of me. He said, what? I said, God takes care of me. Because he had asked me, he says, well, because I told him I'm not coming back. He says, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not coming back. You know, as a journalist, we know that part of the, you know, part of the plan and part of what we sign on for is to be ready to move for the next opportunity when it knocks. 
Right. And I had done that my entire career. I'd done that, you know, as an intern, taking my family across the country and so on. But there was not an inkling in my body that said I should go back to New York and work in Metro. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And my wife wasn't working. And uh, so it puzzled Gerald that I wouldn't take the job in New York. And, uh, you know, it turns out that I was at the Times longer than Gerald was. And how they left before I did. And unfortunately, Gerald passed away. And, uh, and, you know, as I said, God takes care of me. I went to Northwestern. I was a, a, a guest scholar, a guest lecturer. And by the next uh, year, I was a tenured full professor at my alma mater. And, yeah, uh, and I right. still declare God takes care of me. So when my once family, again, no plan, <laughs> no plan, no plan. Look, it's, it's above my pay grade. So when I I wrote a story about one of my former students at Roosevelt University who had Crohn's disease, and uh, it's not necessarily a a death sentence. But a difficult autoimmune disease. Very difficult. And Aaron Aaron Lee, he, I used to tell him, slow down, Aaron. And he would always say, Professor Fountain, I don't know how much time I have. So I stopped saying it. Mm. Aaron went off and he got his graduate degree and he went to work in the broadcast and Along the way, he decided to make a documentary called uh, Dream Chaser about a friend of his who wanted to become a a pro basketball player. But like so many others, he didn't make it to the NBA, but he was able to play overseas and able to make money and take care of his family and so on. And uh, so Aaron got the documentary made and lo and behold, Aaron's dream came true. He got to come back to Chicago as a producer for ESPN. And he... Aaron uh, premiered his movie or did a screening at a downtown movie theater last June. And then a month What's the later, name of it? It's called Dream Chaser. Dream Chaser. By the Aaron Lee. Aaron Lee. And, um, and Aaron, a month later, I get a, I get a message from his girlfriend who says that Professor Fountain, Aaron died last night. Mm. And uh, so... I knew at some point I would write a, 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 a tribute to Aaron. And about October, November, I got word that Aaron Lee's documentary had been picked up by the Marquee Sports Network and they were going to show it, you know, begin airing it. And so I said, this is a great opportunity to write about Aaron, to write his story. And so I wrote a, I wrote a column. I was still writing for the Sun-Times. I wrote this column. And, uh, and it begins kind of, Aaron has some really big news, but um, I'd like to share it with him. And, uh, you know, I back into the story. It's a narrative. Mm. I don't want to give it all away. I want readers to to come to know who Aaron is. So then when I tell you this news and the reason that I can't tell, I re- reveal the reason I can't share the news is because Aaron is gone. And right. um, and so I send the story in my my. Normal editor isn't there at Sun-Times. And Sun-Times new executive editor, Jennifer Coe, is there. And so she she's the one who edits my story. Why an executive editor is editing a column of story, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> but, That's a good uh, question. But so she, 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 my phone rings. And she says, John, check your email. I sent you two versions of your column. Threw me, it was threw me for a loop. Two versions of my column, hmm. <laughs> and so I open them, and it's like you know I use track changes in Microsoft Word with my students, so that they can see the changes I made. And it was like you know, touche, Professor, got you back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she just <laughs> wore, wore wore my column out, and she began to talk about you know I you know I, I thought it needed some changes and so on. I'm like, you know, this is a column, right? This is not a news story. This is not a, a feature story. This is my words, my column. And I'm, 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 I, and probably if there is any bass in my voice or any emotion in my voice right now, it's, it's 100 times what it was when I was speaking to her. I was speaking with her as we learned to do in newsrooms, uh, gingerly. And, Diplomat. And, and yeah, and saying, you know, respectfully and so on. And so, to get the bottom line is she says, um, well, you got, Two choices. She said, we can, uh, you can use either of the two of those versions, three choices, two of those versions, or you can take another stab at it. And I said, I choose option D. 
<laughs> I'm not going to do either. And she said, well, we're, we're not going to write, run the column. And I said, I resign. Oh, so that's how you ended up leaving. Yeah, I said, I resign. I'm out. I'm free. You set me free. Mm. Have you uh, published the story? Yes. Yes, I'll send you, I can send you the link. And yeah. As a matter of fact, Eric Zorn, who's a co- longtime columnist from the Tribune, who retired from the Tribune, but still he runs a Substack. He wrote about it as well. But I write about it, and uh, and I can send you. Please do, and I'll share it far and wide. <laughs> I, I um, before we before we started recording, you mentioned that Maya Angelou quote: "I rise, I am the dream and the hope of the slave." Yes, I was going to ask you what what were your grandparents, your great grandparents? What's their story? Because I, I I firmly believe that you know. Our story isn't just our story. It's the story of many people who come before us. Well, my grandfather, his name is George Albert Hagler, and his wife is Florence Geneva Hagler. And Florence Hagler, and I don't say this just because my she was my grandmother, but she was the sweetest woman I've ever met and uh, never known. And you haven't met my mom, John. <laughs> exactly. The sweetest woman I've, I've ever met. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, it is, you know, I hear you say that and, and I, and I know what that means for us as black men. Oh, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and that thing that they give us that no one else can compare to, you know, when you, when you know that you are loved by your mother and your grandmother and they accept you for who you are. And even when you make mistakes, you can go home and you can, they'll embrace you and they don't sugarcoat it, but they love you for who you are. And that, that is just, it's so, I think, needed for us, especially when we go out into this, into a world that hates us. Into and a I world think it teaches us to love in the face of hate. Yes. In the face of mistakes. It builds such resilience. Yes. You know, I've had people meet my parents or hear about my parents and just say to me, what a gift it is to have that. Yes. And I've said to them, well, let me give you a little of that. Let me give you a little of what they gave me, a little of that love and resilience. It's so, it's so crucial. I know, um, when you were when you wrote in True Vine, you wrote about growing up in poverty in Chicago. You know, I didn't know this. I had no idea you worked in the Cabrini Green housing projects. And for anybody who doesn't know, that's a very notorious uh, <laughs> uh, Chicago housing project. But you also wrote about the True Vine Church that your grandparents founded. Yes. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about how you got there there and i'd love to hear more about how they got to that point but in that in that story you you talked about need in the book you talked about needing 300 dollars for college yes no one being willing to loan it to your mom yes what did you learn from that experience well i will tell you that that hurt very deeply cut very deeply and for years it was it was a source of pain but i think it's important for us to evolve, to grow, and to really see the frailties of people, even when they're well-intentioned. You know, people are complex. My grandparents, you know, in, in many ways sa- helped save my life. And they were, you know, I look to my grandfather. He was, there isn't any man that I know that I admire more than my grandfather. And he didn't have a high school diploma. Um, he didn't have what many would say would be, you know, those uh, earthly trappings necessarily or successes. He was a pastor. But what I admired most is he took care of his family. He and he loved us, and he was a rock. Even when our own fathers disappeared, he was always there. And that said, you know, I have a very close family. And it is the truth that I needed three hundred dollars to go back to school, and I say in the book they could have they could have raised three hundred dollars with a swipe of a pass one swipe of the offering plate in the in the church, 
And um, they did not. I think part of it was, um, you know, their own failings. You know, I have, a, I have a, an aunt who, after reading the book when it came out, she called me late one night and she was crying. And she says, John, I have a confession to make. She said, I read that in the book that we, nobody would give you $300 to go back to school. And she says, I had it. And I know you asked for it. And I can't tell you why I didn't give it to you. And I told her, it's okay. I forgive you. Because in the Bible, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for my good. I don't know what would have happened had I gone back to Illinois at that time. But I began to believe that however much money I needed to to go back, if if it was in my destiny to go back, then the Lord will provide it. Well, one of the things that I think that really resonates about that story with me, you know, both of my parents are the only ones among their many siblings who went to college, and mm. there can be a lack of understanding of the value of it or the impact um, that it can have on people. And, you know, just like what happened when I was at the Times, what I sort of did to myself there, what struck me about that story was out of this bad thing, you got a good message. Maybe it's even the same thing that your grandfather had, but but it seemed like my impression was you took took away a message about self-reliance that probably helped you through the rest of your life that that $300 may not have been worth that gift of understanding. Man, I will tell you, 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 are, you are completely accurate. That $300 many years earlier allowed me to tell Gerald Boyd, I'm not coming back to New York. God takes care of me. Right. Allowed me to tell my editor at the Sun-Times, I resign. It allows me to move forward. It allows me to say as... You know, my Angelou says, I rise bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. And so, you know, within these institutions, you know, of journalism, in these hallowed hallways, we have to understand as, as journalists, as journalists of color, that they don't write our story, that it may be a part of, you know, the roadmap to where we're going. It's a part of our journey, but we can't lose our soul in those places. And, and, you know, the, the kind of angst that we deal with daily, the kind of pressure, the kind of difficulty of being in a place when sometimes I would walk into a newsroom and I could just feel the tension and I just did not want to be there. I felt like not everyone, but there was a general feeling that I should not be there, that I was an imposter, despite all the things I did, having had six internships before I landed my first job, having acquired a bachelor's and master's and associate's degree and done work on a PhD, that somehow I was an imposter. And Mm. that angst, that psychological baggage that that is thrust upon us is something we have to battle and, and, and shake ultimately to be free. And it is a joy to be able to completely speak my mind from my heart and soul. And, you know, it is not hate, but it is the truth about who we are, who our people are, what our issues are. And people don't have to agree with us, but our perspective, our story, is as valid as anyone else's. And it is yeah, it's valid. almost like it's an invisible bag filled with weight that's on mm. your shoulders. And it sounds like you were able to throw off, cast off that yoke. And eyes um, be free. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I was going to ask you, uh, I was going to ask you to that point, right? What 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 advice would you have for, journalists in general, when it comes to covering those stories uh, of the sort of lost and forgotten, the people who 
are uncovered that we're talking about, both for journalists of color and also for mainstream publications? I would say the most important thing is to remember that there are no urban stories, no suburban stories, no rural stories, no black stories, white stories. They're only human stories. And so they may have different faces. They may have different dynamics, different elements, but it is a human story. And it is important if we're going to purport that journalism is essential to democracy, that you know people are rational human beings and they're capable of discerning truth, then we need to present that truth as journalism. And if we don't do that in its totality, then journalism is a lie. And we have to continue to endeavor to do that. And I think just on a practical basis, my mentor, Bob Reed, who was the only mentor I had in journalism, and he was a white man, middle age, at the University of Illinois, who believed in me. And he said to me, John, you're good, you're gifted, and you're going to be able to just get by in, in newsrooms and twiddle your thumbs. He says, but don't do that. Resist the urge to do that. And remember why you decided to become a journalist and go out there and give them hell and tell the stories that matter. And I think we have to remember that. And those stories are worth fighting for. You know, somebody said to me at the Washington Post years ago, an editor in Outlook, he was editing one of my pieces and he just commented. He said, you know, John, we live in an age increasingly of celebrity journalism where people who are journalists, they want to be the story. They want to be journalists they don't, you know, who are journalists who are well-known. And it's never about you. So I tell people, it's not about you as a journalist. And if you get to that point, leave because you've been corrupted. It is about the story. It is always about the story. That's powerful. Why is it, John? I want to say amen every time I hear you talk. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I just wanted I wanted to thank you again for joining me, and I just wanted to give you a chance if you had any sort of closing thoughts for people. Well, I would say I would say this, um, Jason. I am proud of you, man. I'm proud of. Um, Thank you. Uh, the way that you have you have come through and weathered the storm, and um, you have not shied away from taking full responsibility for what happened at the New York Times, and I think that we, as journalists, and particularly as African American journalists, we know what those pressures are. We know that they are real. And that for a young person to deal with them, I won't say that, you know, again, not making excuses, but they were very real. And we have to find ways to advocate and to create resources that are available to journalists who find themselves in situations, whether it be at the Podunk Times or the New York Times, to find ways of, of, of getting help. and. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to call yourself an advocacy organization, but it's another thing to provide help and to, and to be that shoulder that a young person can feel confident they can lean on to get through, you know, difficult times. So again, man, I'm proud of what you're doing and, and who you are. And um, so it's my, my pleasure and honor to come on and talk with you. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.